abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates to Telehell. On the Mount Rushmore of all-time great comedians, Rodney Dangerfield would probably not be included because it would violate the rule of not giving him any respect. Oh, yeah, my wife can't do nothing right. She can't cook the worst cook in the world. Gave my kid alphabet soup. He spelled out help. <laughs> what a lousy cook. I mean, how can toast have bones? <laughs> but who are we kidding? Dangerfield is not only a comedy legend, but the path he took in becoming one of the greats is in itself a legendary rags-to-riches story. Originally bombing as a comedian in his younger days, Dangerfield, born under the name Jacob Rodney Cohen, and later legally changed to Jack Roy, spent most of his formative adult years working odd jobs to make ends meet, including the most commonly told job as a salesman of aluminum siding. During that time of working straight jobs, however, Dangerfield spent his free time stockpiling jokes for what would eventually be his comeback at the age of 40 in the 1960s. By that point, he adopted the now familiar persona of a bug-eyed man with an over-loosened red necktie, and even more familiar trademarks, such as... Oh, what a crowd! What a crowd! And... When you know my doctor, Dr. Vinnie Boombox. Know my doctor. But that a way, but a doctor. And of course, his signature line. I mean, that's the story of my life. No respect. I don't got no respect at all. You can Dangerfield would soon become the preeminent comedian of his day, firing off one-liners like it was a machine gun. Yeah, last week I told my wife, a man is like wine, he gets better with age. She locked me in a cellar. <laughs> oh, my wife. Oh, one night she told me she felt romantic. I took her to a drive-in movie. I spent the whole night trying to find out what car she was in. <laughs> now, I tell you, we never hit it off, you know? My wife's a water sign, I'm an earth sign. Together we make mud. And naturally, with his success on the stand-up stage, he was able to parlay that success into a string of hit movies in the 80s. Oh, this is the worst-looking hat I ever saw. Well, you buy a hat like this, I'll bet you get a free bowl of soup. Huh? Oh, honey, come here, will you? I need two more glasses for the girls, and also bring a pitcher of beer every seven minutes till somebody passes out. And then bring one every ten minutes, right? <laughs> will you stay quiet, will you? Come on, hey, kids, stay quiet, will you? Be quiet, will you? Somebody, will you shut the fat little bastard up? Hell, not even an ill-conceived rap single would derail him. Yes, you heard me, a rap single. It charted in everything. I played hide-and-seek when I was three. No respect, no respect. Why they wouldn't even look for me? No respect, no respect. I was an ugly kid, I never had fun. No respect, no respect. They took me to a dog show and I won. Unfortunately, despite the want and urge to dissect that waste of vinyl, it's irrelevant to what we're going to discuss today. At the peak of Dangerfield's fame, somebody thought it would be a can't-miss idea to put a legendary comedian in his own sitcom. What resulted was something so out of place and so illogical that it wound up getting banished into two TV wastelands. One being the land of summer TV pilot burn-offs, and the other being a place where the burn-off is far more severe. A place called Telehell. Can't get a break! In order to understand how this bizarre one-episode anomaly even made it to air in the first place, we must first begin with a light tutorial on how the TV season works. 
Don't worry, I promise I'll be quick. The subcontinent of Pangaea, 100 million BC. Dinosaurs roamed the Earth completely oblivious to the fact that millions of years from now, they would become fuel for many automobiles in the future. Okay, that may be a little too far back. Let's just start with a random 21st century year sometime in the middle of the fall at a nondescript TV network. While the network's current offerings for a new TV season are just beginning at that point, planning and preparation for the following TV season begins right away through various development deals. Through these deals, various TV production companies get to work on making several dozen TV shows in the hopes that the networks they pitch them to will eventually pick them up for a series run later that year. This process runs for about several months and is colloquially known as pilot season. It's during this pilot season that the potential candidates for next fall's schedule are weeded out through a lengthy process of writing, rewriting, filming, audience testing, and ultimately, executive approval, or a green light. And if that pilot gets greenlit by the TV network, it's then approved for its first season on the air. While many TV networks go through dozens of TV pilots in a development year, only a handful of them make the final cut of the network schedule, while the rest of the unsold pilots become either lost to time, leak out their pilots on a video sharing service, or, if you're really desperate, you actually air the failed pilot during a time of the year when nobody watches much TV in the first place and call it a special, simply because you need to patch a hole in the schedule, a practice that's still done to this day. Which brings us to the fall of 1989. The NBC network was enjoying its extended comeback thanks to years of scouring off that Silverman residue from the 70s and early 80s. Come home to the best television network for news, sports, and entertainment. Thanks to a revitalized comedy and drama slate, the network felt invincible for the first time in a long time. So much so that big-name producers were knocking on the Peacock's door once again. Among them was another one of those all-time icons of the TV industry, Aaron Spelling. Spelling, who spent most of the 70s and 80s making magic for the ABC network, thanks to hits like Charlie's Angels, Dynasty, and of course, The Love Boat, was looking to do things beyond hour-long dramas and cheesy TV movies. Amazingly, his production company never once produced a successful comedy series with emphasis on successful because it wasn't as though they never tried. Most notoriously, 1986's Life with Lucy. Regardless, Spelling's production company was eager to put on a comedy that was hopefully going to be the one that got the ball rolling for future sitcoms to come. The premise was simple. A young teenager was trying to navigate the pitfalls of high school and is in frequent need of advice. Who does he turn to for that advice? Not his parents, because sitcoms like that have been done to death. Not his friends, because NBC was still about four years away from a sitcom with that happening. Instead, he looks to the venerable stand-up comedian that he idolizes for advice. Odd uh, plot point, but sometimes you need to do something different to sell a show. Now then, what hip, late 80s, early 90s comedian would come in to fill such an important role? Let's see... 
How about Jerry Seinfeld? What do you think? This is a little scam I have? I take this tiny shirt all over the city, conning dry cleaners out of money? Seinfeld, premiering Thursday after Cheers on NBC. Nah, his time would come about a week too late. How about Andrew Dice Clay? Well, Miss Muffet sat on a tougher. Eating a curd some way. Long came a spidey, sat down beside, he said, hey, what's in the bowl, bitch? Oh! Oof, not for prime time. And if his appearance on SNL that year proved anything, I don't think for NBC ever. Let's try Sam Kinison. How come we didn't cross the 38th parallel and push those rice eaters back to the Great Wall of China and take the work brick, brick and new them back into the fucking Stone Age River? How come? Tell me why? Say it! No, 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 no. He already got in trouble with NBC one too many times in the 80s. Let's see. Oh, I got it. How about the guy who gave Kinnison a small part in one of his movies? Because Truman was too much of a pussy wimp to let McCarthy go in there and blow out those commie bastards. Good answer. Like the way you think. Well, it may not be the correct reason, but somehow we get to Rodney Dangerfield, who, even though he was at the top of his game by that point in his career, was not only pushing 70 as he was being cast, but it also felt like an odd choice not only as a sitcom lead, but also as a role model to a young high schooler on a family sitcom. Of course, that's just the idea on paper. A lot could still happen in practice. The rest of the non-Rodney cast was a durable combination of industry pros and at least one soon-to-be star. First, we have the main character, the aptly named Rodney Barnes, played by Jared Rushton, who by that point was an in-demand child actor who appeared in classics like Big, Overboard, and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. It was also thanks to that movie that one of his co-stars, Amy O'Neill, joined the cast as Rodney's sister. Mom and Dad were played by veteran character actor Jane Daly and the narrator of the greatest talk show story of all time, the late Jay Thomas. And Mike and I jump out and he says, what are you guys doing? I said, you backed into my car and you broke my headlight. He says, I did not. I said, yes, you did. He says, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to call the cops. He says, oh, really? Well, who do you think they're going to believe? You two hippie freaks are me. And the Lone Ranger gets out of the back of my car. <laughs> I swear to God, he goes like this. They'll believe me, citizen. <laughs> Rounding out the cast were the people at Rodney's school, including up-and-coming comedian Thea Vidal as his teacher in what I can only assume is a Tina Turner fright wig, and his friends, Sonia, played by a post-pubescent punky Brewster, Soleil Moon Fry, and Nick, played by future up-and-coming star of the Garfield movies, among other things, Brecken Meyer. Of course, plot or no plot, it didn't really matter who else was in the cast. As long as Dangerfield was around, the network instantly greenlit a pilot for the potential 1990 fall season. And for reasons that will become obvious, you will see why this show wound up in the killing fields of the summer pilot burn-off graveyard. After the break... I'll tell you, with me, nothing comes easy. I've been waiting for Larry Lujai for hours. I feel I got this morning show on WLS. Well, then I get some respect, pardon me, for WLS. They're bigger than ever. I hear everyone listens to Larry Lujai. I see they got some new faces around here. Well, he's got music, news, traffic. I had your brother for dinner. And I tell you, Larry Lujak, he appreciates comedy. Oh, he'll be glad to see me. Hey, Larry, Larry. Easy, fella. I tell you, I don't get no respect. 
What are you kidding me? Rodney Dangerfield is mad. <laughs> no respect. I tell you, I got no respect at all. He bought this plastic wrap to keep his fruit salad fresh. But I can't get it off the rolling onto the bowl. Rodney, you should have bought Glad Cling Wrap. Glad unrolls smooth and easy and clings tight when you need it to. Unrolls easy? Yep. And clings tight. Every time. Okay, honey. Make Rodney glad. It's yours. Don't get mad. Get glad. Look for free holiday baking gifts inside Glad Cling Wrap and other specially marked Glad products. You know, I finally found a beer I can respect. Light beer from Miller. It tastes great. But what I really like is it's less filling. Light has one-third less calories than their regular beer. I tell you, I gotta watch myself. This is a tough place. Well, this place is so tough, the hat girl's name is Dominic. In a place like this, I gotta move fast. I can't afford to get filled up. I tell you, I don't get no respect. Light beer from Miller. Everything you always wanted in a beer and less. June 11th, 1990. Dick Tracy was about to become a polarizing hit for Disney. The Detroit Pistons were on their way to winning a second consecutive NBA title. And at 8.30, 7.30 Central and Mountain, NBC, with very minimal promotion, snuck whatever the hell this was on the air to an unsuspecting audience. Where's Rodney? What a childhood I had. My mother breastfed me through a straw. Where's Rodney? Well, my old man took me to the zoo. They thanked her for returning me. Where's Rodney? Now, last week I looked up my family tree. Two dogs were using it. That's the story of my life. No respect. And the award for most irritating theme song we've heard around here has a new candidate. Though not quite the buzz saw that the theme to Quark was, this one had a bit of a clash to it that just didn't mix well. Between it being a pseudo-80s pop sound and the intersplicing of various Dangerfield one-liners, the theme sounds like it's trying a little too hard to please audiences both young and old. Not only that, but it actually rips off a pre-existing hit song. Show of hands, how many of you out there remember who El DeBarge is? Well, he had a big hit song in the mid-80s called The Rhythm of the Night. This is the rhythm of the night, the night. I said the 80s version. That's a different person entirely. Okay, that's right, this guy. He had a string of hits throughout the mid to late 80s, one of which was this little number that he made for the 1986 robot comedy Short Circuit. Now, I'm not saying that both of these songs are identical by any means, but if you play both of them side by side... My old man took me to the zoo. They thanked her for returning me. Last week I looked up my family tree. Two dogs were using it. That's the story of my life. No respect. It has to be more than a coincidence. All I know, while looking ahead at the end credits to see who did the music, the theme song was composed by one Mr. Mike Trevera, whose only work at that point were a handful of Hanna-Barbera cartoons according to his IMDB page, and has zero connection to DeBarge whatsoever. I know we're supposed to be focusing on the show itself and not the theme song, but the fact that somebody took it upon themselves to rip off another person's song is gonna count heavily in our final judgment, and we wouldn't be doing our jobs if we didn't point that out. Now then, on to the actual show. Act 1 begins with a typical day at a typical public school, where we meet not-so-typical Rodney Barnes. Hi, my name's Rodney, and I'm 13. 
Well, soon to be 14, I mean. Tomorrow, as a matter of fact. As I think about being 14, here's what I'm looking forward to. I won't have to be 13 anymore. When you're closer to get my driver's license, just maybe I'll be mature enough to talk to a pretty girl without getting sick. Okay, maybe he's more typical than we think on the surface. Because what teenager doesn't go through things like that? While his Tina Turner cosplaying teacher gives her lesson, young Rodney, who by the way is wearing a perfectly normal high school outfit of a dress shirt and a loosened red necktie, has his sights set on the girl of his dreams, getting a totally not creepy rub down by the bully of his nightmares. She's so beautiful. I'd like to go out with her and play connect the dots. For the purposes of this being a podcast and explaining a tepid joke, we should point out that the girl is wearing a polka dotted shirt. Go on. Dinosaurs populated. See, doing what's with that jerk? Young Rodney then tries to defend the girl's honor by chucking a banana at the bully's head. A fatal mistake, because if we learn nothing from our last episode, the bully should know at least how to defend himself against a piece of fresh fruit. First of all, you force him to drop the banana. Then, you eat the banana, thus disarming him. Hey, come on, that threat was from last week, not this one. That's just overkill now. <sighs> anyway, young Rodney's teacher reads him the riot act. Darling, what do you want to do with your life? I don't know. I just know I don't want to be like everybody else. I can relate to that. <laughs> just be yourself. Be myself? I don't even know who I am. I'm like five different people and all of them are flunking. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? I'll try harder. And sadly, that's all the time we'll have with Thea Vidal in this show. A shame, really, since she was one of several dozen comedic talents that Dangerfield himself gave a big break to on one of his stand-up specials in the 1980s. And that was the best they could give her, even though she could have given us more. Every day, my baby going to school. My baby going to school, my baby going to school, I'm getting... People, I have four children. I'm waking up at five o'clock in the morning going, everybody get the fuck out of my house. Well, not quite that extreme. I mean, it's still a family sitcom, but the point remains. Moving on, young Rodney is conversing with his friends, as high schoolers do. You know what your problem is? You don't pay attention. No. The problem is... I don't get no respect. While the giant locker-sized poster of Dangerfield on the interior is a harbinger for things to come, young Rodney attempts to make a move on his crush once again. Cindy, this must be a sign. Look at her. Look at the way she moves. Look how beautiful she is. She even makes that look attractive. That, by the way, being digging out her ear while nobody's watching. But then again, nobody's perfect. So I guess you're at cheerleading practice. Yeah. I better go change. Need any help? <laughs> what is the matter with me? Facing awkwardness that, again, I'm certain most teenagers have experienced at one point in their lives, young Rodney wishes he had someone to talk to who isn't family or friends before making a clumsy move again. Now, what would Rodney say to her? I could really use his help just once. I'd like to talk to him. And it's here where we experience the TV equivalent of Whiplash, as we then cut to a seemingly different sitcom altogether, we see real Rodney haggling with a waiter over meals alongside his date of the moment. My girl wants a big steak, and I want a big steak. And what comes with that? A big check. <laughs> very funny, very funny, huh? And make sure they're tender. The last steak I had here, I couldn't get my knife with a gravy. 
And it's at this point in the proceedings where NBC may have realized it made an Arrested Development-sized huge mistake when it came to getting this pilot made. What do I mean? Listen to this. What's going on? I feel like I gotta get out of here. Honey, this is bigger than your steak. I feel weird. I gotta get out of here, I tell you. I gotta get out of here. That's right, folks. For absolutely no rhyme or reason whatsoever, Rodney Dangerfield, a comedian at the top of his game, is transported to a suburban high school because a random kid has the power to summon him at a moment's notice. I'm going to say this again really slowly. See if you can keep up. Rodney Dangerfield. Top shelf comedian. Magically teleported. To a high school. At the whim of a high school student. And all because he's seeking wisdom. I have questions. Many, many questions. None of which is, where's Rodney, because clearly I'm looking at him talking to a high school kid who just, poof, out of thin air, managed to summon him to his presence. Instead, I want to ask... Why? As in, why is the kid able to do this for seemingly no reason? The show attempts to answer that in this throwaway line. Rodney Dangerfield, is that really you? Hey, kid, who are you? My name's Rodney, too. What am I doing here? I don't know. I was just standing here hoping I could talk to you, and then here you are. Maybe it's a Rodney Rodney type of thing. Kid, don't major in science, huh? And that's it. That. That is it. That's all we're going to get for an explanation as to why an average 14-year-old has this supernatural power to conjure up his comedy idol. I mean, clearly they can do better than that. Well, maybe it's one of those things where you can't leave till you grant my wish. Grant your wish? Hey, my name is Rodney, not Jeannie. Do I look like I live in a bottle? Nope. Wrong. Please try harder. Give me one good explanation as to why a high school kid is able to summon Rodney Dangerfield. Go on. I'll wait. Anytime now, whenever you're ready. Any explanation will do. Any at all. Hell, I'll give you a few. Uh, young Rodney got hit in the head with a VHS copy of Caddyshack. Uh, young Rodney's femoral artery got damaged by a jagged laserdisc copy of Back to School. Young Rodney's nervous system got altered while sitting too close to the TV when the real Rodney was doing one of his Tonight Show appearances. Young Rodney accidentally choked himself with one of his red neckties and was able to develop telekinesis as a result. Young Rodney got electrocuted by his cable box trying to catch his latest HBO special. Uh, oh wait, that's, that's how I wound up here. Okay, strike that. Any explanation at all, please. Well, as long as you're here, there's this girl, and I want to ask her out. But I can't get the words right. Nothing. You're just going to go ahead and ask Dangerfield for advice without any further research and development as to how this otherwise miraculous marvel wound up happening? Kid, I know what you're going through. Girls always gave me a hard time. There was one girl. She told me, come on over. There's nobody home. I went over. There was nobody home. We're just blindly accepting the fact that this is a thing that happens for no reason? No reason. At all. Uh, I tell you, kid, the best thing with girls I find is to flatter them. Tell you love her eyes, her lips, her hair. 
the way she parts her hair. In fact, tell you love all her parts. <laughs> Remember, women deserve to be appreciated, you know? Okay. Rules for writing a TV pilot 101. When you're writing the first episode of anything, it is imperative to get the details of what the show is about within those 22 minutes. It's those details that would get potential viewers hooked in to watching the show for what may be a long run. But if you don't include those details, the audience will not only be confused from day one, but it's going to make the rest of the episodes, if any, seem increasingly confusing to the viewer. To leave out the reason why this kid can summon a comedian from out of nowhere is a sign that either the writers of the pilot gave up before they could start, or it was the late 1980s when this got made. So perhaps the people involved were so coked up in the development process that they simply forgot to jot that reason down. Regardless of a plot hole you could sail the Titanic through, even in the condition it's in now, young Rodney gets a second chance with his crush. I just wanted to tell you that I love your eyes. I love your nose. I love your skin. I love the way it covers your bone structure. I usually don't talk like this. I'm glad. Uh, think you can dial it back just a little, kid? You're coming off desperate. What I'm trying to say is I think you're beautiful. Thank you. No, seriously, I mean it. If I looked like you, well, first of all, I'd have to drop out of gym. <laughs> Tomorrow's my birthday, and I was wondering if you'd like to come to my party. Tomorrow? Well, I guess it would be okay. Great. And, uh, afterwards, maybe the two of us could go to the movies? On a date? Sure, why not? Thank you, Rodney. So, while we're still trying to wrap our heads around the circumstances of the past two minutes, we then get a look inside young Rodney's family life. Starting with his sister, who, if you've ever seen Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, you'll sort of feel jarred by the fact that Amy O'Neill may or may not be ripping off Kelly Bundy from Married with Children. I'm going out to eat. Kind of a date. Oh, yeah? Well, what's his name? Names aren't important. I know. Humor me. <laughs> Spit. He happens to be in medical school as a lab experiment. Mom, I'm gonna kill him! How does the turkey know how to fly? <laughs> he just knows. Followed immediately by some brief, pointless chit-chat with the mom. So how was business today? Well, I gave Mrs. Dorkin a facial. Did it help? I told her to keep the mud on forever. And then the arrival of the second most thankless job on this show, Jay Thomas as Rodney's father and his building superintendent. Yeah, Mrs. Spamuti. What do you mean? I fixed your tub last week. What are you putting down there? You're not supposed to wash your dog in the tub. I don't care if the two of you take a bath together. Look, I don't want to know about that. That's not a natural relationship. A thankless job that ultimately contributes next to nothing. Either that or he was killing time until he did another cameo on Cheers as Eddie Levesque. Moving on, young Rodney brings everybody up to speed who are now just snapping out of the delirium of the fact that he can summon a comedian for no reason. I met a girl today. You did? What's she like? Is she smart? Is she pretty? Does she shed? <laughs> She's coming to my party. Afterwards, I'm taking her out on a date. But Rodney, what about your grandparents? What do you mean? Well, honey, you always go out with your grandparents after your birthday party. It's a tradition. Oh, Mom, no. Let me tell you something. If everybody in life was busy having a good time, who'd take out the garbage? <laughs> You're looking at him. So this is what passes as a plot on this sitcom about a kid who can summon Rodney Dangerfield for no reason. A kid has to make a life-and-death decision between spending time with a girl he likes 
or spending time with his grandparents who may not have that much time left. For most people, that's a pretty common dilemma that can easily be solved. But in the world of sitcoms, it's a tale as old as time. Like having two dates on the same night that you can't break off, while wacky shenanigans happen in between them. Which is something that shouldn't be a complaint were it not for the fact that this was supposed to be a primetime sitcom. And not one of those teen-oriented ones NBC would eventually air on Saturday mornings in the 90s. You go out with this girl another time. Not your whole life. Right now's the time for family. The family first. We gotta kind of band together here. May the circle be unbroken. You mean go with your grandparents, you're grounded till you're 50. Act 2 begins with young Rodney getting ready for his birthday and holy shit! This kid is obsessed with Rodney Dangerfield. I mean, I wish you could see this, but his room is covered wall-to-wall with pictures, posters, comedy albums, a life-size cardboard cutout? Dude, I was a fan of George Carlin at your age, but I never took fandom this far. This is a psychological profile waiting to happen. Maybe that's why he has Rodney summoning powers. He locks himself up in his room during his free time and chants spiritual mantras while focusing intently on his Rodney paraphernalia. Which is still a better reason to have these powers than no reason at all. I- I'm, I'm sorry to ramble about this, but this is starting to border on lifetime TV movie levels of devotion minus the serial killings. No wonder this kid needs help going through high school. A few doses of shock therapy? He'll be right as rain once again. But before we forget about potential psychoses, we actually still have a plot to deal with. Starting with his friends coming by to alert him that Rodney's party is about to begin. Come on, Rodney, we gotta go, man. The party's gonna be starting any minute. Yeah, I'm ready. So, uh, have you broken the news to Cindy yet? No, and I got the feeling, you know, if I break the state, I'm never gonna get another shot with her. You gotta go out with your grandparents. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. Everybody expects me to do the right thing. I mean, what about me? When does my number come up? Knowing you, I'll go ahead and guess negative 46. Hey man, you only live once. Get in a little trouble. Why should he? I don't think Cindy's so hot. Hey, what can I tell you? I like her. The only reason you like her is because everybody else thinks she's pretty. Do you think I am that shallow? Yes. Yes. (laughs) No, your sister is a shallow person for dating a guy named Spit and ripping off Kelly Bundy at the same time. You, on the other hand, are just a kid trying to figure things out while having an unhealthy obsession with a comedian. There's a stark difference between the two. So, we head to the party populated by a bunch of extras getting paid to go, Ooh. from Aunt Flora, honey. Rodney, what do you say? (laughs) And just as young Rodney tries on some cowboy gear that not even a six-year-old would touch in the late 1980s, Miss Cheerleader Crush ambles on in and gives Rodney the kind of deer-in-the-headlights stare that's often reserved for when you walk in on your parents having sex. All the while, young Rodney pretends to shoot his stomach out of embarrassment. After that future therapy session... Punky Brewster gives him a present. I hope you like it. Will you stop it with the ooze already? It's getting old. Baseball glove. Yeah, I thought you were going to bake me something. I tried. 
I think the glove will taste better. And this will be as good a time as any to lament on the downward trajectory Soleil Moon Fry has taken since Punky Brewster ended about a year earlier. To go from being the star of your own sitcom to somebody who's not only relegated to the sidekick seat, but manages to appear on camera for a grand total of roughly three minutes is quite the swan dive to take without there being any water below to splash it. Thank merciful God her career actually improved a little bit after this, because otherwise this show would have been her key to obscurity. Young Rodney then tries to segue himself over to his dream girl, only to get cock-blocked by his grandparents. Uh, man, am I tired. You know, I can understand if right after the party you guys just want to go home and sack out. Rodney, are you kidding? We're not tired. We slept while we were driving. I'm not gonna bother questioning that line because I'm still trying to question the logistics of a kid being able to summon a comedian for no reason. How's this for a theory? The kid took a red necktie, had it emulsified into a magic goo, used it as a jam for his peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. No? Well, too damn bad because I'm running out of valid hypotheses. Young Rodney continues to try desperately to sneak away from his grandparents. But uh, maybe uh, you'd rather go out with some of your friends. Yes! Yes! Oh, yes! Believe me, we'd understand. I hate it when they understand. I gotta go out with them. If I don't, I'll be a creep. Young Rodney then approaches the girl and tries to break the news to her in the most subtle of ways. The best thing about a date is the anticipation. So I figure, why ruin it by actually going out? <laughs> Don't you want to go out with me? Of course I want to go out with you, but you see, the thing is... Maybe we should leave now. And with his puberty officially kick-started, young Rodney realizes too late that he did the second wrong thing of this episode. First being saying yes to this show to begin with. With nowhere else to turn to to get out of this jam, he uses his powers of telepathy to summon Dangerfield once again. Speaking of which... I think I'm starting to realize why this show is called Where's Rodney? If you include the commercial breaks on this show, and not counting the kid's psycho den filled with Rodney memorabilia, there's been a 15-minute gap in between Rodney's last appearance. 15 minutes in a sitcom is practically an eternity, so my guess is he was being paid by the word to appear in no more than six minutes on a show where he not only gets top billing, but his name is in the title of the damn show! Nevertheless, the kid calls Rodney just as he's in the middle of a fencing lesson. Sure, why not? I mean, I know this is a sitcom, and I know that any chance of this show having any rhyme or reason got curb stomped within the first five minutes, but for the most part, I've been able to make peace with that to a point. But now that he's being summoned a second time this episode, we come to a point in the program that all but broke my brain with the utterance of the three simplest words in the English language. Is that you? 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 A Rodney Dangerfield superfan who has pictures, posters, and a cardboard cutout in his room, and, and, and previously summoned the same person earlier in the show is now asking that same person, is that you? 
If I ever needed proof that I actually arrived in hell, please say hello to People's Exhibit A. Because there is no way that a pair of comedy writers could possibly be that devoid of effort when they make somebody ask, is that you? When, number one, your main character's bedroom is lined wall to wall with every piece of memorabilia dedicated to this one person that you could find without calling him a stalker. Number two, when you've already had a face-to-face -face conversation with a person you summon through means that are never explained. And number three, perhaps most importantly, has probably one of the most recognizable faces and voices in all of showbiz history and you still couldn't recognize him? I don't care if that was a throwaway line, that piece of dialogue should never have existed! And now that we got that out of the way, let's proceed. What words of wisdom does the real Rodney have for us this time? Look, kid, they're grandparents. They're getting old. It's not easy. You gotta show them some respect. I know I'm in the same boat. That's why I'm fencing. I want to stay young. Because I'm getting old. Are you kidding? My insurance company sent me a half a calendar. <laughs> old, are you kidding? I got a kidney-shaped pool with a stone in it. <laughs> I mean, you know when you get old, you get certain signs. I walked past a cemetery, two guys ran after you with shovels. So what should I do? Well, when I go out on a double date, it'll show Cindy you're warm, you're sensitive, and Grandpa pick up the check. But Ronnie, what'll we do? Well, after dinner, you can take a nice slow walk. Then you can all stop and have your blood pressure taken. <laughs> Just remember, kid, be nice to your grandparents, okay? Family's important. Remember. You can't forget your family. They won't let you. And there you have it. The moral of the story, which, once again, might have been better suited for a Saturday morning sitcom as opposed to prime time. How does that turn out? Cindy, this is my grandma and grandpa. Hi, Hello. Cindy. Hi. Listen, I've been thinking. Why don't all four of us go out together? All of us? That could be fun. Yeah, we can all go to a movie together. Great idea, Grandpa, you know? They're having a Rodney Dangerfield film festival. Who's that? <laughs> See, because this whole show is about this kid and his obsession with this comedian, and the show is desperate to give us a throwaway laugh. Totally worth it! The epilogue to the show ties everything up in one tidy package, which it's going to have to do because after this show, we will never, ever see it again. What about uh, you and Cindy, huh? We had a good time. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I got the feeling that maybe the two of us will... <laughs> you know, I never really did like her. <laughs> Congratulations, show! You managed to negate your entire half hour without having to use the it was all a dream trope. Fortunately, we do get one last bit of advice from the real Rodney to hopefully make things worth it. Hey, kid. Don't feel too bad, will you? I mean, I'm happy when girls walk out on me. They're usually running. Loosely translated, I think that's his way of saying that there's plenty of fish in the sea. In the case of this show, however, it's a one-of-a-kind flounder that deserves to be fried within an inch of its life. So, what levels of respect should Where's Rodney get in Telehell? It's not easy being me, I tell ya. Let's loosen our necktie onto the nine circles. It's rough, I tell ya, rough. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. 
The obvious one of the week is the fact that this show never went any further than as a burnt-off pilot for a show that went nowhere. Easy prey for Limbo. We also have two minor cases of ripping something off, both from the DeBarge sound-alike theme song and from Amy O'Neill's character trying to co-opt the success of a much better sitcom character. More than enough proof that we need for fraud. I'm also going to take a stab in the dark and theorize that NBC and Aaron Spelling had pretty deep pockets. Deep enough to pay Rodney Dangerfield a lot of money to appear a grand total of six minutes, even though he's the star of his own show, hearkening the signal for greed. And also gluttony, because Dangerfield was already doing fine on the stand-up circuit, not only with his own act, but breaking new talent at his various comedy clubs. He probably didn't even need to do this show in the first place. And then there's the show itself. One that can't seem to make up its mind whether it's supposed to be geared towards teens, families, or fans of classic comedy. Not to mention dialogue that not even the laziest of hacks would find credible, but also the screaming lack of a major plot device explaining just how exactly that major plot device would work in the first place. All of which are the earmarks of being lazy and slothful. Unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about that because Sloth isn't a part of Dante's Nine Circles, but rather one of the seven deadly sins. And around here, that's a big difference. However, I will say on a personal front, the fact that they had this icon of comedy severely limited in its own show, as well as the total wasting of talent of other experienced performers, plus the utterance of those three little words near the end. Are you? That's more than enough to keep my anger cup filled, thus invoking some personal wrath towards the show. Hopefully you now understand why this show never went any further than a pilot that burnt off in the heat of the summer. Where's Rodney earns five out of nine circles of telehell. As much as Dangerfield has made a career out of getting no respect, he obviously did so with a bit of facetiousness. Of course we respected him, just as sure as he respected his fans in return. Except for this. Something that he really didn't need to do considering how popular he already was at that time. Sort of felt like if an Oscar winner wound up slumming it at a 7-Eleven just for kicks. Sure, it's a quantum description of a thing that was theoretically possible for a person to do, but by all accounts and purposes would still be unnecessary for that person to do. We already know that Dangerfield is funny and can do well with his own material. Only on rare occasions did he rely on other people to write for him, and at even rarer times did that material work in his favor. Thankfully, the closest Dangerfield would ever come to appearing on a sitcom ever again after that were in numerous cameos. Most notably, a 1997 episode of Home Improvement. Hey, what kind of wood are we using in this frame? Huh? Uh, we'll be using distressed maple. Wait a minute, just speaking of distressed, I understand your wife is kind of annoying. How annoying is she, Rodney? Not as annoying as you. <laughs> and thus, we have a legitimate reason why we can't truly hate Rodney Dangerfield around here. If he can make Tim Allen look good, he can have all the respect he wants in his afterlife. I mean, that's the story of my life. No respect. I don't got no respect at all. You could not Next time on Telehell, a loving tribute to that one thing on sitcoms that conditions us to laugh. Whether a piece of dialogue is funny or not. Hi, Mrs. Owens, Mr. Owens. Hiya, champ. How's it going? Well, I got eight, but other than that, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> Until then. If it's not in telehell, 
It's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. There's now more ways to listen to Telehell than ever before. Of course, the usual ways, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and our website, telehell.libsyn.com, but also these new places, including castbox.fm, podtail.com, listennotes.com, mytuner-radio.com, and blueberry, which is spelled B-U-L-B-R-R-Y.com. We'll have many more coming soon. And as always, don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and share on our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. <laughs>